This past year, I turned 35. Now, I realize that's not old, but it's the oldest I've ever been. And it's certainly older than I used to be. And one of the ways I find myself feeling older is it happens to me probably a couple of times a week. I'll walk into a room very confidently, and then I'll start to look around, and I'll wonder, why did I come in here? What did I come in here for? I don't know if that ever happens to you. But you know, that's an appropriate question for us today, for all of us right where you sit. Why did we come in here today? What do we do in having church at the Mississippi Craft Center? And the much bigger question, why start a new church in the land of 10,000 churches? I mean, do we really need another one of these here in central Mississippi? Well, there's an outstanding answer to that question. And the reason it's outstanding is that it doesn't originate with me. This doesn't come from me. Ultimately, this comes from the Bible, and more specifically, it comes from the mouth of Jesus himself. That's why I had us turn to John chapter 4. If you've got a Bible or the Bible on your phone, if you want to raise your hand real quick, we'll give you a Bible that's yours to keep if you don't have one and would like one. But I'd love for us all gather in John 4. It's a long, relatively a long story that we don't have time to read all of it, but it's one of the most remarkable stories in the Bible. What Clint just read a portion for us, it's a story that maybe you're familiar with. We call it the woman at the well where one day Jesus, in the heat of the day, he was famished, he was exhausted. They were at a well outside of a Samaritan town, and Jesus took a seat while his disciples went on into town to try to scare up some lunch to bring back and have a picnic. They wanted Jesus to be able to eat. And so Jesus, while he sits there by himself, a woman from this Samaritan village comes up to draw water by herself, and Jesus engages her in conversation. Now, what he says to her is remarkable, but the fact that they have this conversation to begin with is stunning. Because in the culture of the day, in Jesus' culture, there were certain rules that regulated how people uh, related to one another. Uh, unwritten rules and some written that you didn't violate. And yet Jesus in this story breaks just about all of them. He plows through about every rule in the rule book. I want to give you three examples here because I think they're important for us to understand Jesus' point in this conversation. The first is that he's a man speaking with a woman he doesn't know. Now that may seem very strange to us in our culture, but here in the time, men did not speak to strange women. That was considered improper, uh, unless something perhaps uh, shady was going on. Okay, you didn't do that at this time. Further, he is a Jew speaking with a Samaritan. And John tells us, Clint read it, Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. That maybe seems like a little parenthetical statement, but that's a huge statement. There was a deep racial divide between these two people groups that the Jews on their part, they didn't even see Samaritans as people. They were subhuman. They were not worth our time. And so they were kept at arm's length. Most Jews didn't travel through Samaritan countryside just to avoid them altogether. And then thirdly, Jesus as a religious leader having a conversation with an immoral person. And what we find out as we continue to read through the story, Jesus says, go get your husband, bring him over here. I want to meet him. And she says, I have no husband. And he says, you're right, you've had five husbands. You've been married five times, and the man you're, married, you're, you're living with now is not your husband. Now, in, an, in what is called an honor and shame culture, where your moral behavior was very heavily scrutinized, this woman would have been a social outcast because of her shady past. She was at the very bottom of the totem pole. And no self-respecting religious person would have given a person like that the time of day. 
And yet we see Jesus, he crosses all three boundaries at the same time. The, the issue of gender, of race, of morality, he plows through all of those things in order to engage this woman face-to-face in conversation. And they get beyond chit-chat pretty quickly. You notice that? Jesus takes her into a deep spiritual conversation where eventually he offers her something called living water, taking the picture of well water. She says, give me this water thinking that he's talking about something physical. He says, no, if you drink of the water that I give you, you will never thirst again. One taste of this living water, and you'll never want again. What Jesus is offering this woman is eternal life, salvation, forgiveness of sins. And she is trying to make sense of this conversation. She says, oh, okay, yes, yes. When Messiah comes, when the Savior comes, He'll explain all these things to us. And that's when Jesus very dramatically looks at her and says, I, the one speaking to you, am he. She says, when Messiah comes, he'll explain these things. Jesus says, you're talking to him. Very dramatic, very dramatic. Now, I want to say, before we move on in the story, I do want to say something that's obvious as we sit here. We don't aspire to be like this woman, do we? I mean, nobody wants to have... Uh, a, um, a, a moral reputation that, that people look down on you because of your past. Nobody aspires to that. Nobody wants to be a social outcast on the bottom of the totem pole that you come draw water by yourself because no one's willing to come with you. All right? Nobody wants that. And yet here's the truth. The truth for me, and what the scripture says is the truth for all of us, is that we're far more like this woman than perhaps we care to admit. Her story is our story. That just like her, the Bible tells us, Romans chapter 3 tells us, all people have sinned and fall short of God's glory. Uh, Something I say often, nobody earned their way in here today. We're not here at church because we have achieved a standard that pleases God and he's happy to have us on his team. No, we are sinners and we're in desperate need of God's forgiveness and grace. That's the biblical story from front to back. And so what this woman is being offered, this living water, that's what Jesus came to offer you and me, something that we desperately need as those who are spiritually dead and in need of redeeming life, which is what Jesus came to offer us. So we don't look at this story kind of over John's shoulder and, and, and kind of you know, uh, shame this woman for her lifestyle, okay? as if I'm better than her. No, I'm the same. Her story is our story. We need to grasp that if we're going to understand everything that comes after this. We need Christ the same way she did. Now, the first part of that story, as powerful as it is, it really just sets us up for the second part. Okay, That's what we're preaching on today. It's the second part of the story where Jesus establishes for his disciples, but also for you and me, why we're here. Why we're here. And so it begins in verse 27. Look with me at John chapter 4, verse 27. At this point, his disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. You see the the unwritten rule there at work? And yet no one said to Jesus, what do you seek, or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men there, come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to Jesus. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, no one, uh, nobody brought him anything to eat, did he? Jesus said to them, my food 
is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. All right, so to recap here, the woman has left her water pot. She's left the well. She's gone now into town to proclaim to her neighbors what has just happened to her, to beckon them now out to meet this person for themselves. And the disciples show up. There's this exchange here. The disciples show up with food. They've brought lunch, the heat of the day. Jesus is famished, and they're trying to push bread into his mouth. They're trying to get him to eat. And Jesus, in the midst of all this, rather than taking the bread, the physical food, he makes one of the most significant statements in the Bible. Now, it's not one of the more quotable or memorable things Jesus ever said, but I'm not sure he ever said anything more important than this. He looks at his disciples and he says, I have food to eat that you don't know about. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus, right here, is making the declaration as to why he came to earth in the first place. He's telling us the reason he came to earth and became a human being. He became one of us. He says, this is my necessary food. I have food to eat that you don't know about. He's saying, I am sustained by something. I'm filled by something. I'm kept alive by something that you can't see, that you don't recognize. Now, what's he talking about? His central mission and purpose for life, his necessary food. What does he mean? The disciples don't know. They still think he's talking about physical food, just like the woman thought he was talking about physical water. And so thankfully for them and for us, Jesus elaborates. Look at verse 35. Again to his disciples, Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look. Look on the fields that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Now, if you're the son of God, you're allowed to switch metaphors. Something Jesus does here in this story... He starts off talking about living water, and then he transitions to food, to necessary food, and now all of a sudden he's talking about uh, agriculture. He's talking about a harvest. Now, Jesus is allowed to do that, okay? We can't fault him for that because all of his metaphors are meaningful. They all serve a purpose. And what he says here, what he says about the harvest, speaking to his disciples, and by extension, he's speaking to us, it's life-changing if we're willing to receive it. And I'm not overselling it. It's life-changing if we're willing to adopt this as our vision for life. Now, before we go back to the text, we understand what Jesus means. When he talks about the harvest here, he's talking about disciple-making. Disciple-making. Uh, and here's what I mean when I say that. that, that uh, Jesus was not interested in people simply admiring him. He didn't waste time on admiration. That was not his goal. He didn't want people just to appreciate him or to study him or to think him fascinating. That wasn't enough for Jesus. Jesus came so that he might make disciples. That is, people who have been saved by faith, they have received Jesus' grace by trusting in him. And now, having trusted him, they have adopted him as their master, as their Lord. They come up under his leadership in all of life. That's what a disciple is, a person who not only believes in Jesus, but who is now uh, submitting all of life to his leadership 
and lordship. He is our master. He sets the agenda, and we delight to follow him. That's what Jesus was after here. And so when he talks about the harvest, he's not talking about um, some feigned association. I want to get close enough to Jesus to experience the benefits, but I don't really want to go all in. No, he's talking about the real thing here. And when Jesus talks about this harvest, he's not talking about his mission only, but he's inviting the disciples now into it as well. He says, you're going to sow and you're going to reap. Now go back to verse 35 and understand here what he's trying to communicate to us about the present time in which we live, okay? Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? In other words, you guys can look at a field, at a farm, and if the harvest is yet a long way off, you don't have to be an expert to tell. I, have, I know nothing about agriculture. But if it's June and the harvest is not coming to its fullness until October, I can look and recognize that it's not ready. Okay? Any of us could do that, even without a working knowledge of farm life. Right? And so Jesus is trying to make a very clear and obvious statement to his disciples. You guys know in, in physical terms when the harvest is here and when it's ready. You can see it by the naked eye. But then Jesus says, that's not the harvest I'm talking about. Here's the harvest I'm talking about. He says, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. Like, in other words, the harvest is here. The harvest I'm talking about is here and it's now. It's not a long way off. It's not something for someone else to do in terms of sowing and reaping. It's here, it's for you, and it's now. Many commentators have pointed this out in, in looking at these verses, that if we remember how this story is unfolding, Jesus is giving this lesson to his disciples. But at the very same time, simultaneously, remember the woman had left the well, had raced down into town, and had informed everybody who would listen about what has just happened to her. Come see a man, she says, who just told me everything about my life. Is this the Christ? And it says the people of the town had left what they were doing and they were coming out to meet him. And so when Jesus says to his disciples, lift up your eyes and look at the harvest, that the fields are white, that means the harvest is here and it's ready. It's entirely likely that he is pointing them in that moment right back toward the town, where at that very moment, a host of people are walking in their direction, coming to see Jesus for themselves. Jesus is not just giving them a theoretical lesson in disciple making. He says, look, it's coming. It's here. Here they are. And Jesus makes the application for us in verse 36. See, see 36 again? Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. Sowing and reaping, very simple, very simple. To sow is to point people to life in Christ. That because I am a Christian, my life, my actions, and especially my words are meant to point other people to the grace of Jesus, the saving grace that I myself have experienced. We sow that seed into the lives of our neighbors. And then reaping is being able to actually experience their salvation, to see and rejoice in that person that I've sown into now, actually coming to faith themselves in Christ and becoming his disciple and walking with him. 
Now, we don't always get to reap in that direct kind of way. We don't always see direct and obvious fruit of our sowing, which is why Jesus says there are times where one sows and another reaps, but they rejoice together because they're all playing for the same team. We're all on the same mission of sowing and reaping. So we're pointing people to life in Christ, and then perhaps we actually see them receive Christ and walk with him in a life of faith. That's the great work of the harvest. Now, see the connection as to how all this ties together. Back when Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. What is, in this context here, what is God's will and what is God's work? Why did Jesus come? For the sake of the harvest. This is what he's telling us he came to do. It's for the sake of the harvest. It's the harvest in the way that we, we uh, experience Jesus coming for us but also it's the harvest now that Jesus sends us out into the same mission that he came to achieve. When Jesus had a conversation with a man named Zacchaeus, it's in the book of Luke, Jesus tells Zacchaeus why he came. He says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. He meant that for Zacchaeus' benefit, because that's what happened in that story personally. But he's giving us a general vision. This is why I came to earth. It's for the sake of the harvest. What Jesus came to do, he now calls his followers to do as well. And this is why, for, as Christians, it's not sufficient for us to admire Jesus only, to study his life because he's interesting to us, or even to just try to follow his teachings the best we can as some sort of moral compass for life. That's not why he came. He came to save us. He came to, he came to become our Lord, that we might submit all of our lives up under him and experience the, the sweetness and the joy of a life given to the purpose of that we were created for. That's why we're here. And Jesus calls us to do, in a sense, the very same thing he came to do, to point people to him and perhaps even to see them come to faith as well. He gives us the privilege of rejoicing in this mission. It's a, it's not, it's a duty, yes, but it's a privilege and it's a blessing. Something that uh, I say often, if you come around here, you'll hear me say it. Jesus delights to bring us in and it's glorious that we are unworthy, we do not deserve his mercy, and yet he came that he might bring us to God. He laid down his own life that he might bring us to God, something we otherwise could never experience. But having brought us in, having brought us to God, Jesus also delights to slingshot us back out. He sends us back out into the harvest, into the place where those who do not yet know him are in need of hearing about the grace that has also come to us and saved us, that they might be brought in and then sent out in like manner. That's what he wants to do. And so when Jesus says, this is my necessary food, he is talking about an urgency, a commitment, a devotion that at that point his disciples did not fully grasp. But he says, I want you to have the same urgency and the same devotion. Lift up your eyes and look. The mission, the harvest, it's right here. It's right in front of you. It's now. So what are we doing here? Why start another church when there are so many churches in this community already? Because the fields are white for harvest. It's incredibly simple. It's, it, Jesus has just told us that wasn't something that was true back then, and yet somehow we've got it covered now. No, the fields are white for harvest. That is ever-present until Jesus one day comes again. Elsewhere, Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. 
And he tells us we should pray to the God of the harvest that he might send out more laborers into it. And so we sit, now this is hard to believe, this, but this is true. We sit right now in a community where today, on a Sunday, on any given Sunday, 70% of our community is not in church. 70%. In central Mississippi. Now, that's not to say that the goal is church attendance. That's not God's goal. But it is reflective of a tide that has turned. It is reflective of a culture that has perhaps an allegiance to Jesus, but not the fullness of what God calls us to in terms of devotion and commitment and discipleship. That it's one thing, uh, and of course the vast majority of our community, we know this, statistics tell us this, the vast majority claims uh, what's called confessional Christianity. If you ask me if I'm a Christian, of course the answer is yes. But saying it doesn't necessarily make it so either. And we've been around the block, I think you've probably been around the block long enough to know, that proximity to church, proximity to religious things does not equal spiritual life. It doesn't mean that somehow you've been transformed uh, by osmosis, as it were. Just being close to it, growing up in a good or Christian family doesn't make it so in your own heart. Uh, Self-identification as a Christian is still socially advantageous in the Deep South. It still can get us places and open doors for us, right? It's still a good thing. We're not outcasts around here if we claim to be Christians. But saying you're a Christian does not guarantee that there is fruit in your life that makes it so, that there is a transforming grace that has taken root and is, and is growing and overcoming my heart and my life. And how do I know that? Because that was me. And perhaps for a lot of us, that was our story. I grew up in a good Christian home. I grew up going to church. But it was something I then assumed to be true of me that wasn't actually operational in my life. And so I was self-deceived. I thought something was there, but it wasn't. And only until somebody made clear to me the gospel and the light came on did the transformation begin, did Jesus actually enter in and become my Savior. And there are so many people among us in our communities as we sit here right now who do not know Christ in that way, regardless of how we associate ourselves or what church we belong to, or the proximity to religious things that we depend on. And so when Jennifer and I were called to start to plant a new church in this community, it was not in hopes of further saturating the market. We're not, in, we're not fighting for market share with other churches. We're here simply because God has called us not to be another steeple on the corner, but God has called us to exist for one singular purpose in everything we do, not just as a pastor, not just as a church, but as a dad, as a husband, as a citizen, in everything I do, we exist to grow and multiply disciples of Jesus. When Jesus talks about the harvest, he's not talking about an organization or a building or a program. He's talking about people, souls, eternal souls, people for whom Jesus came to save through his death and his resurrection, people like you and me who once were far off but now have been brought near by the shed blood of Christ when he died to forgive our sins. And as long as there are people in our community who are not walking as his disciples by faith in him, then we need more churches here, not fewer. We need more committed disciples who are sincere about taking on Jesus' mission and adopting it for ourselves as our mission for life. And that's one of the things I look forward to the most at, at Harvest Church is not programs, not one day building a building. I, honestly, that's not even on our radar. The thing that we're, we're most excited about and most in tune with 
is how can we, in this moment in time, in the place God has placed us, in this, this little dot on the map, how can we grow and multiply disciples and therefore fulfill this privilege that Jesus has called us into? God will bless the labor of people who commit to what he told us to do. Not as an obligation, but as a joy because we get to invite others into what we ourselves have experienced. Now, it's important for us, as we kind of wrap this up, we can't skip the end of the story. It's enough that Jesus has given the lesson to his disciples. It's great, isn't it? But it's interesting, in this story, Jesus gives the lesson to the disciples, but the application of the lesson is lived out by whom? Do you know? It's the Samaritan woman who actually lives this thing out not because she was told to, she didn't know to. It was instinctive to her because of what she'd experienced. Look at verse 39. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in Jesus because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I've done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two more days. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, Oh, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Now, this nameless woman is no hero, right? I mean, we've talked about her. We don't aspire to be like her. In all the things that her culture established as worthy and valuable, she's basically none of them. She's a woman. She's a Samaritan. She's a social outcast, right? Three strikes. She's out. How can a person like this be a credible witness for Jesus? And yet she's our model here. Jesus tells the disciples how it's done, but she, in the midst of this story, shows us how it's done. She's the one. She didn't know much, did she? But what she knew, she took back into town and she beckoned people, come see for yourself this man who has told who has seen me to the very bottom and yet has still offered me life he knows everything about me and he still offered me living water come see him for yourselves and they did and because they did many people came to life salvation in Christ simply because this outcast of a woman urgently shared the message with them and when they saw him for themselves, they said, thank you for bringing us to him, but uh, it's, it's no longer your word. It's not vicarious for us any longer. We've seen him for ourselves, and they have life in his name. You know, we're going to meet that woman in heaven one day. And I hope I have enough wherewithal in heaven to thank her. A woman that in my ugly self-righteousness, a woman that I might look down on, on this earth, I get to look up to in heaven because of what she did in pointing other people to Christ. I want to state the obvious here. You know more Bible than she did. I bet you do. You probably have a much better moral reputation than she did. But this is not a story about religious appearances. This is a story about sowing and reaping. This is a story about what has happened to us. We now turn around and make known to others that they might experience it for themselves, that they might know the life-giving grace of Jesus Christ. And in that case, this woman shows us what it's all about. And in that case, we ought to want to be more like her. See, God has called us to be a people. I said this a minute ago, not splintered off 
trying to do this on our own, but a people, plural, that's what the church is, a people who joyfully sow and reap together. The abundant life we've been given is now meant to propel us outward. We don't incubate. We don't enjoy the blessings only for our own benefit, but now we're propelled outward to make him known and to experience a life of great fruitfulness. Some of us will sow, some of us will reap, but we rejoice together because we're doing it not for our sake, not for our own sense of fulfillment and ambition, but we're adopting the ambition of Jesus. And that's why he tells us to lift up our eyes. Kyle, lift up your eyes. Off of all the silly ambitions that perhaps vie for my attention, all the unnecessary things that I try to give my life to when I've actually been called to something supremely and eternally significant. Lift up your eyes and see it. When we decided to call this place Harvest Church, it wasn't just because we liked the way it sounded, although we do. We called it Harvest Church because that's our mission. It's our vision wrapped up in a single word. Why are we here? Because Jesus said, look, Look around you right here, right now. The harvest is ripe and it's ready. I want us to pray. I'm going to lead us in prayer. And my prayer for us is today that wherever we entered in to this conversation today, I don't know, but that we would come back, back to center here in terms of what Jesus has called us to. Not a duty that is divorced from who we are. Jesus does not command us around just to see if we'll do it. He commands us actually to enter into his joy, his necessary food, his mission for life. He says we get to do what he came to do. If God himself would call you into a specific mission for life, what ambition beyond that would be worth our time when we have something like the harvest in front of us? Let's pray that God would root this deeply in our hearts. Father, would you in this moment Show us the foundation upon which we stand, and it is of, it's purely grace. We're being called in this message today to do something, but would you show us, Lord, with great clarity? Would you, would you uh, inject this truth deeply into our hearts that we don't earn our way to you? We're not called to do things so that you'll love us more and accept us and let us into heaven. We, we're called to do, we're called to go and sow and reap in light of what has already been done for us. That is the death and resurrection of a Savior, Jesus. That's what we're doing here. That's the platform from which we jump into the deep end here today. You've called us out in light of what you've already done. Your work is finished and we receive it as a gift. And perhaps there's a person in this room, when I talk about religion, when I talk about proximity and church attendance, things that maybe we hang our hat on, but the truth today in someone's heart may be that, that there's not a life-changing grace that is taking root, a trust, a trust not in our own good works and religious activities, but a trust in Jesus Christ, 100% in the work that he's done for them. And if, that's, if there's somebody in this room that that's true of, Lord, would you bring them today to a place of trust, of receiving by faith a gift that cannot be earned? 
before we go and do anything, Lord, would you, would you establish that as the firm foundation of our lives? We can't do anything apart from that. But Lord, for those of us who do know you and have walked with you by faith, Father, we need to be encouraged in this. That there's nothing wrong with ambitions for a life. We should go and do all sorts of wonderful things, Lord. But the primary ambition, the reason you put us here, not just as a church in, in the whole, but Lord, each of us as individuals, we are called the mission for which you placed us on this earth is to joyfully proclaim and live out what you are doing in our lives so that others might see you and turn and glorify you themselves. Father, that may be for us a very scary thing, a fearful thing, an overwhelming thing. Perhaps for some of us in this room, we feel like the woman at the well. We feel discredited. There's no way anyone would listen to me because of what I've done. Father, would you correct us right now? That we have nothing to fear because you embolden and empower us. You are with us. And you've called us to do it not alone, but together. We have nothing to fear. And that, Father, that perhaps we do have a, a, a past that others might discredit us on the basis of things we've done, but that did not stop this woman. And I pray, Lord, that it wouldn't stop us, that we would own our past, but that we would own it in such a way that says Christ is sufficient to forgive our past. That's the whole point. We're not calling other people to be like us, to be good. We're calling other people to a Savior who is good. And Father, remind us of that. Empower us in that. Give us courage for the harvest. Lord, I pray that from this day forward, our lives would never be the same. Even if a person in this room never enters this room again. But if, Lord, if they would take with them your words and your calling, that, that Lord, we would count that a great victory because we have done what you very simply called us to do the same will and the same work, the same necessary food that Jesus uh, walked with when he walked the earth. Thank you for this. And we pray, Lord, your grace to do it. In Jesus' name, amen.